Welcome to the VO2 Lounge podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking all about different weight loss strategies and evaluating whether it's possible to call any of them the best for weight loss. So getting straight into things, let's get a general state of affairs out the way. There are The rates of overweight and obesity are rising worldwide, as we are all probably aware, and there is a need for effective methods of weight loss and weight maintenance to help individuals make changes to their lives. The purpose of this podcast is to examine the evidence available for successful diet strategies for weight loss and weight maintenance among adults in particular, Uh, the key being in that sentence maintenance. Many studies uh, and weight loss methods over the years have enabled people to lose weight, but keeping it off still seems to be a problem for a lot of people. So obesity is classified based on a body mass index of the individual, a BMI of 18.5 to 24.9 kilograms per meter squared is considered to be the normal range, while a BMI of 25 to 29.9 is considered overweight and anything over 30 is classified as being obese. Uh, Further classified as obesity class 1, with a BMI of 30 to 34.9, obesity class 2, which is between 35 and 39.9, and class 3, is over 40. Obviously, if you're over 40, this is beginning to become a serious uh, issue. Uh, In 2016, the World Health Organization, the WHO, you may have called them, uh, heard them called by, reported that more than 1.9 billion, 39% of the world's adult population, uh, were overweight globally. And of those, over 65 million, 13%, were obese. Obesity is associated with multiple uh, comorbidities, including type 2 diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, cancer, sleep apnea, and obesity hyperventilation syndrome. Um, The effectiveness of different types of diets based on different micronutrient restrictions have been a topic for debate for the past few years, if not decades really. Um, Some researchers support restriction of carbohydrates, while others endorse cutting down proteins and fats. So there are various diets out there that will be covered in this episode. This is going to include things like um, low-calorie, very low-calorie, low-calorie ketogenic diet, uh, meal replacement methods, uh, low-fat diets, just the ketogenic diet in general. Uh, plant-based diets and vegan diets, high-protein diets. Uh, The Mediterranean diet is another one that has become quite popular and I think has been popular for quite a while. You've got paleo and the primal diet, which, again, in recent years has become quite um, a talking point. Uh, And then whether different types of meal timing um, and intermittent fasting are adequate methods for inducing weight loss in individuals. So if any of those methods are of interest then feel free, there will be show notes to allow you to skip to those in particular, but if you would like an overview of all of them, then stick around for the entire episode. And so without further ado, let's get on to the diets. Uh, So I've sort of split up into three main types or categories of diets. Um, The amount of food eaten, uh, types of food eaten, and then meal timings, I would say is how you can kind of categorize those. So the first of the amount of food eaten is obviously just going to be low calorie. So a low calorie diet involves consuming something like 1,000 to 1,500 
calories per day. Now, obviously, that can vary depending on the individual, but a deficit of 500 to 750 calories per day have been used for weight loss and are recommended by many obesity societies and guidelines. Uh, low calorie diets typically restrict fats or carbohydrates. Often this is because neither of which has been determined to be more important for weight loss if only a calorie deficit occurs. Um, so they've just decided that neither of them is uh, more important. So just focusing on one is the best outlet. Uh, this will require a fair bit of meal planning and preparation, which takes quite a lot of effort, especially for people not necessarily interested in kind of like the health and fitnessy kind of area so meal prepping can be a bit of a chore um, and weight loss maintenance requires a sustained low calorie diet uh, metabolic adaptions occur to decrease energy expenditure which leads to a plateau with this type of diet which individuals may misinterpret as kind of failure and then really get knocked off the diet and then kind of rebound after that and especially with the reduced kind of metabolic rate and weight loss it means that then when they rebound to their original calories the weight gain is quite drastic um, uh, it can be easy for people who are already into sports to follow this kind of diet because it's a bit more regimented but for general population the low calorie just directly counting calories and going for a low calorie diet can be quite uh, tricky. You can then move on to the very low calorie diet, which traditionally a very low calorie diet um, provides less than 800 calories a day. It's not recommended for routine weight management. It should only be used in limited circumstances along with medical monitoring according to the obesity guidelines. Uh, of course, the diet is often successful at weight loss, but the, uh, the reintroduction of calories has to be gradual and the rebound weight gain is often common due to uh, the severity of the diet. And often people just go on these kind of binge slash gorging frenzies because you're just eating so little for such a prolonged period of time that when you do start then coming back, it, it can be really quite drastic. So so both of these, obviously low calorie is just the traditional uh, method and it's both of them are obviously going to work. Both of them require a gradual reintroduction of calories and quite a lot of meal prepping. I suppose maybe a very low calorie doesn't because simply you're eating so little that it's much easier. But both of them, I would say you're obviously going to just prioritize the low calorie diet people have spoken about very low calorie and using it for a blitz in one go but i think gradual weight loss is always preferred simply because of the the ease of following it and the lack of maybe the reduced amount of hunger and then also within the low and very low calorie diets there are also what is considered a very low calorie ketogenic diet now I will be going into the ketogenic diet separately in more detail later on. But as we were talking about the very low calorie diet, I thought I would add this bit in here. Another form of the very low calorie diet, the very low calorie ketogenic diet, has been proposed as a promising option uh, for significant weight loss in short duration of time and poses stability for two years. 
Um, the very low calorie ketogenic diet consists of very low calories, again, seven to 800 calories per day, and low carbohydrate, very similar, well, identical to the ketogenic diet, we're talking sub 50 grams of carbohydrates per day, um, along with adequate protein consumption equivalent to about 0.8 to 1.2 grams per kilogram per day of um, of your, well, your body weight. Uh, for a short period of time, followed by a gradual switch to low-calorie diets. The very low-calorie ketogenic diet program is recommended by the Italian Society of Endocrinology in cases of severe obesity, sarcopenia obesity, obesity associated with type 2 diabetes, hypertriglyceridemia, um, hypertension, and sorry, and hypertension. However, this program is for those with type 1 diabetes, uh, kidney failure, or cardiac arrhythmia, and older patients with frailty. Somewhat um, pulled back on. The same is for the ketogenic diet. These these um, illnesses are often then resulting in people staying away from the ketogenic diet but if you're currently healthy outside of the obesity of overweight nature and anything that comes with that then a very low calorie ketogenic diet can be an option again because it's very low calorie as i'm going to talk about later if you're going to pick the ketogenic diet it's probably not necessary to go to this extreme of uh cutting back on calories even if it is going to show you faster gains you need to kind of approach weight loss in a long time frame and i think the longer you set your time frame on to some within some reason the more successful you're likely to be so staying within the uh, amount you eat kind of category uh, meal replacements really can be put within this category um, is another method people often use for weight loss uh, products such as huel allow people to uh, know exactly how much they are consuming while eating something that is nutritionally complete and easy to prepare. Now I know Huel isn't directly marketed as a weight loss shake like maybe SlimFast or whatever, but I'm using it as an example because it's popular in uh, in fitness spaces and because it they do provide a meal replacement shake that is 400 calories um, it, it is a, it's a kind of good example of something that is considered nutritionally complete but also is on the lower end of calories so yeah uh, meal replacements include other products marketed as soups shakes and bars but also portion controlled ready-made meals again Huel has slipped into that space as well um, and various other brands are in that space where they produce these full meals rather than just being a uh, shake that is just highly uh, calorie controlled and maybe within kind of the 400 calorie range. Uh, meal replacements are used instead of normal food, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, for one or more meals to reduce the daily calorie intake. Uh, meal replacements can be useful for calorie controls because people tend to overestimate or underestimate in some cases the number of calories in food or can't be bothered to do the work themselves in measuring and counting calories and, and I actually think that the underestimation is kind of undersold like people usually are saying 
people's diets fail or they're not losing weight because they don't realize how much oil they're eating or how many carbs they're eating. But I think equally there are some people who on the way down rebound because they cut more than they think they are cutting. And because the metric is just losing weight and often people may like if you're losing 300 like 100 grams more than you thought you should be per day or per week or whatever the time frame is you're probably not going to readjust um you're probably just going to carry on going and think oh well i'll lose the weight quicker and then the hunger cravings come in and then that's where you get the issues um a systematic review showed that the usefulness of meal replacements in weight loss demonstrating a mean difference of between 2.22 percent uh, sorry between 2.2 kilos and 6.13 kilos compared with other diets involving um, support alone so just outside support they were given their meal plans and what uh, whatever uh, despite their convenience and affordability uh, in a lot of cases meal replacements are typically not successful in maintaining weight loss over a long duration this is because uh, this has become kind of less the case with products such as fuel, which claim to be nutritionally complete. However, I tend to remain a little skeptical about things like that as long term interventions. I think they can be useful again in the short term and getting a hold of things and reintroducing correct like proper meals is probably your best bet. Really, I don't I mean, honestly, I don't know what the long term effects of staying on these kind of meal replacement substances are. But also with things that are liquefied, it can bypass the mechanism at which you feel full. And it's some, it's often thought as the one way to bypass and not lose weight on a gastric band is simply by consuming liquid calories because it just it all slip, goes through and you've got this really calorie dense. In It's unfair to say things like that, but... They do have a purpose, they do have a place, and if you are maybe someone who doesn't want to have to count out every single meal, maybe you produce one yourself and then you have a meal replacement substance for another meal. And it just makes counting cal calories easier, I suppose you know exactly what it is as long as you weigh it out, and so on. So, that's meal replacements. So moving on from those types of diets, we've got the low, like the types of food eating category, things like low-fat, ketogenic, uh fiber all, all those kind of things so starting with the low fat diet the strategy of reducing total fat intake is widely used for weight loss because a single gram of fat contains more calories than a gram of carbohydrates or protein respectively they are nine grams for fat four for carbohydrate sorry calories per gram and four for protein a low fat diet usually consists of dietary composition of fat ranging from very low, like sub 10% uh, and more moderate, kind of sub 30% um, for fat and 7 to 10% of which comes from saturated fatty acids. However, randomized trials have failed to demonstrate better weight loss maintenance by reducing energy intake from fat than other dietary interventions. Uh, in another study, although low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, so LDLC, if you've ever seen that on your blood work, levels were reduced among individuals with obesity who followed a low-fat diet, triglyceride levels increased and high-density lipoprotein cholesterol levels decreased. Um, so diets low in saturated fatty acids, as well as those supplemented with good quality fat and fibres, 
are reliable and healthy strategies for people with obesity to achieve weight management and to prevent some types of cancer, including uh, colorectal cancer and breast cancer, uh, when combined with total calorie uh, restriction. So I think the thing with low fat is that fat doesn't really have a dramatic, if any, impact on uh, your blood glucose level it doesn't it doesn't spike it in the way that carbohydrates do and so if you are restricting fat it means well you're highly unlikely going to be getting a vast amount of your calories then as a result from protein probably what ends up happening is as we'll kind of discuss as a downside to trying to use a vegan diet as a weight loss method is the increase in carbohydrates was then it's going to probably mean that you're having spikes larger spikes uh, at meal time and if your protein levels aren't coming up to kind of compensate for the lack of fat the satiation you're going to get from those meals is likely going to be reduced and make the diet harder to follow in general really so low fat i think maybe if it works for someone it does but I, the mechanisms in place really aren't probably robust enough to warrant it as a kind of optimal strategy onto the ketogenic diet which i do have a full episode on but here will be a very brief ish summary of specifically around weight loss Uh, in my other episode i went on to a wider effects of the ketogenic diet other than its direct implications on weight loss So the ketogenic diet is characterized by an extreme reduction in carbohydrate intake, as I've said before, less than 50 grams per day, and a relative increase in proportions of protein and fat. Now this is the diet I will be providing the most information on uh, in this episode, as as it just seems to be more complicated, the methods of weight loss, it seems to have the most validity really within these. Um, There are other methods, but I think for at least from the what I've read. When it comes to a diet other than just restricting calories and having some kind of balanced diet, really, this as a diet that is eliminating food groups, this seems to have the greatest potential for people who are obese. So uh, various pieces of existing evidence suggest that the effectiveness of the low uh, calorie ketogenic diet in weight loss and in the loss of fat mass. A recent study showed that high-protein diets also effectively reduce hepatic fat, which is fatty liver. Uh, On the other hand, excessive intake of carbohydrates is harmful for individuals with insulin resistance. Most people who are overweight or obese are insulin resistant. Therefore, diet choice have a major impact on diabetes and obesity, and one that is going to heavily restrict Uh, carbohydrates is going to have a positive effect on this insulin resistance. Um, So several possible mechanisms for the role of the ketogenic diet in reducing body weight have been suggested. So each gram of uh, glycogen is stored in three grams of water. Therefore, the initial weight loss could be due to glycogen depletion and water excretion. This is a common thing people see. They go onto the ketogenic diet and you may hear people who've been on it for like two months or whatever and then rebounded or came off it but they reported this massive weight loss and if only they had stuck to it they would have seen even more and to be honest that is probably the 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 best 
like I, if, for example, as someone who does an endurance sport of cycling, when you start, you go out for maybe two, uh, four hour days in a row and you get to the end of that week, you will have lost some fat, definitely, but also the just the glycogen stores start becoming heavily depleted, you start losing water mass and that is the easiest way to make yourself lose some weight really quickly is to dump a bunch of water weight. Uh, there is a decrease in the metabolic efficiency uh, also resulting in greater loss of energy in the form of heat and in the form of ketones in the urine, uh, sweat and feces. Uh, ketones also have a direct uh, and appetite suppressant effect. Uh, high fat content in the ketogenic diet delays digestion, uh, providing a sense of fullness that people often refer to when they're doing the diet. Uh, more importantly, the utilization of fat as a body fuel promotes fat loss and therefore weight loss. Better way of putting it is your body is just simply reminded of, of its ability to utilize fat to run itself rather than constantly searching for glucose in the, in the blood, which is often the case with people who are obese. You just simply, the amount of food that is being consumed to maintain that weight, especially if it's high in carbohydrates, means you'll just have a chronic uh, elevation of uh, blood glucose throughout your life um, so i'll give an example of a long-term study this study monitored weight loss as well as changes in visceral fat mass using uh, dexa visceral fat is uh, just fat around the organs and dexa most people probably already know about but it's just a way of measuring body composition um, a study by Mariano et al. compared a very low-calorie ketogenic diet to a low-calorie diet as a treatment for obesity over two years. The amount of visceral fat loss in the very low-calorie ketogenic diet group was three times greater than the control group while pre preserving lean body and skeletal bone mass. However, none of these side effects were severe. Like, and so it did suffer from side effects. Sorry, but none of them were uh, severe enough to cause the patients to drop out uh, of the study, and most uh, subsided within the first month. It's quite common for people to suffer side effects from the diet initially. Initially, there can be quite a lot of hunger and fatigue and headaches and dizziness, simply due to your body's resistive nature to come off its dependency on blood glucose and that's where you start getting this but then as soon as you get into the ketogenic state and ketone bodies start getting released and your body starts fueling itself again these will tend to subside um, so the ability to control hunger is generally also a key component to weight loss success if you don't feel hungry when you're in a calorie deficit that's obviously going to be very beneficial uh, studies have shown a negative correlation between uh, this substance called BHB levels and the urge to eat and feelings of hunger during a phase of maximum ketosis. This result is supported by other large investigations in overweight and obese adults, which also found that low-carbohydrate diets were more effective in controlling hunger than low-fat diets, which kind of makes sense, really. If fat is satiating and carbohydrates result in peaks in blood glucose, well, if you eliminate the peaks and increase the satiation, then it would seem obvious that it'd be easier to follow a diet that is in a, some form of calorie deficit. Um, 
This is a common trend for levels of ketosis to relate to positive differences in food cravings, uh, alcohol cravings, physical activity, sleep patterns, sexual activity. All of these are affected. Uh, the, this outcome is backed by a thought that postprandial glycemic dips are the best predictor of appetite and energy intake following a meal and large glycemic dips are usually associated with high carbohydrate consumption. Uh, generally, the ability for the ketogenic diet to reduce hunger, uh, lower glycemic fluctuations and concentrate uh, influences on areas of the brain associated with um, addiction are all positive signs that the ketogenic diet should be considered as a treatment option for obesity and in general weight loss. And it's really just targeting the mechanisms at which the body has somewhat gone wrong when uh, obesity sets in really. It is re-educating the body to say you don't necessarily need this glycogen flowing, this glucose flowing through the blood all the time in such high levels um and swaps over to as using fat as fuel as cliche as it is is quite literally just it's doing something your body should have always been able to do that you've suppressed through just chronic overconsumption of food really so the ketogenic diet really from the literature seems to be have the highest efficacy i suppose but it seems to make the most sense. As for a long-term option, there are deficiencies that can set in, but those have all kind of been covered in my full-length episode, and this is just trying to target the effectiveness of each diet in weight loss. So going all the way kind of back around from ketogenic diets, we're going to plant-based diets and the vegan diet. Uh, So plant-based diets have been shown to be effective in body weight loss, in particular the reduction of Uh, visceral and subfacial fat in the muscle tissue which in turn is involved in glucose homeostasis there are two mechanisms that seem to be involved in the body weight loss associated with plant-based diets the first mechanism is linked to high fiber content which has been correlated with weight loss in various studies while the second is linked to the increase in postprandial energy expenditure energy from things such as uh, digestion tends to just generally again link back into the fiber when you're eating such heavy amounts of plant-based foods a lot of it is tied up in all these fibers and is hard for our body to digest and it just makes the amount of energy expenditure increase so now high carbohydrate meals are thought to have a greater impact on brain reward and homeostatic activity in ways that impede weight loss maintenance Interestingly, the increased brain activity findings were partially associated with higher insulin levels as well. Why do I bring this up? Well, the main issue is that the plant-based diet are often made up largely of carbohydrates, which can make hitting the high-protein goals needed to maintain lean mass while losing weight difficult. Now, often it is proposed, at least in kind of athletic spheres, And even in non-athletic spheres that a 2 grams per kilogram of body weight um, of protein, right, is required slash ideal slash your best kind of middle ground bet for preserving as much lean mass as possible while losing weight. So, for an example, let's start with the protein requirements of an 80 kilogram athlete or non-athlete in general uh, attempting to consume 
1.7 grams per kilogram per day, so not even the 2 grams. This means a total protein requirement of 136 grams per day is required. Now let's say a mixture of lentils and various beans are going to be your primary source of protein, then on average you're going to be consuming 334 calories per 23.5 grams of protein, with 61 grams of carbohydrates being accompanied by this protein. The result would be 1,932 calories to obtain that protein goal, or which over 60% would be consuming carbohydrates uh, sorry would be coming from carbohydrates um, now nuts can be used to balance the carb to fat ratio however significantly increase the total calorie count similar kind of protein but increased calories uh, using animal protein uh, sorry if you wanted to know how much that would increase it to we're talking an additional 300 calories there really 200 calories it's bumping it over the 2000 calorie mark to reach the protein goals. Uh, using animal protein, averaging 7% fat beef and chicken breast, for example, is the two I've just selected, only 131 calories are needed to obtain 22 grams of protein, meaning that only 809 calories are needed to achieve uh, this protein target. This is less than half the amount before. This is almost in the realms of a very low calorie diet, but this kind of reflects how hard it is to actually perform a very low uh, calorie diet. From this, it's clear to see where limitations of the plant-based and vegan diets can arise when attempting to consume adequate protein for athletic performance and muscle hypertrophy. So this isn't even weight loss. This is just if you're trying to consume 1.72 because you're you're active, you're maybe in the gym, you're doing a sport and you want optimal recovery, or you're trying to lose weight during that performance, or you're just a, like an ordinary person trying to lose weight, it just becomes very uh, difficult to achieve these goals um, without the uh, introduction of um, plant-based protein powders, and that's where they become critical. If you're eating, if you're an omnivore, really you can get away with not using protein powders if you so wish. If it happens to be that you still struggle, then you've got protein powders or you just don't want to have to eat that much food or, or whatever or buy that much meat. Whereas it's kind of essential for anyone following a plant-based diet because if you want to try get that... Uh, calorie count down if your deficit needs means you need to be at 1700 then you physically cannot rely only on plant-based like raw ingredients otherwise you're going to go over your calorie count and your macronutrient profile is going to be all over the place really so it makes it a bit more difficult to directly use a vegan or plant-based diet on a weight loss program if you were trying to hit certain targets if you're trying to ignore protein then yeah i guess it's possible but we're looking at whether what option is optimal and if you compare it to the ketogenic diet where really you can still hit your um you, you almost it's easier to hit the two the, the two grams per kilogram because simply there's no carbohydrates in there to add calories so you effectively hit that protein goal, move on to fat for the rest of your diet, and then just a couple of carbs here and there that you kind of pick up along the way. But that's the vegan diet. Now, on the topic of protein, there is also 
the high protein diet. So a high protein diet has been popularized as a uh, promising tool for weight loss because it improves uh, society and decreases fat mass. Satiety, society, I don't know how you'd actually phrase it. But anyway, your satiation in general. Dietary guidelines for adults recommend a protein intake of 46 to 56 grams or 0.8 grams per kilogram uh, of body weight per day. Now, that is where I think these numbers are obviously incredibly low. And then it considers uh, anything over that 0.8 as being considered high protein. Uh, Usually a high protein diet refers to an increased protein intake of about 30% the total daily calorie uh, of total daily calories or 1 to 1.2 grams per kilogram uh, of body weight per day which is really not loads i'd say well if you're playing sport really you're going to be hitting 1.2 anyway you're going to want to consume that kind of protein intake so the high protein diet most of these other diets anyway you're going to probably be classed as high protein by just simply the amount you're going to consume with it and when you're in weight loss state. But the Atkins is an example of diet that has gained popularity in society as a non-energy restricting but low carbohydrate, high protein and high fat diet. Uh, Diets with higher protein intake can provide significant benefits to prevent weight regain and mainly due to the satiating effects of high protein diets. Uh, from what I can tell, these satiating effects seem to stem from factors, uh, from two factors: the reduction in the rate of digestion, and two, the stimulating of muscle protein synthesis, ending the phase of muscle protein breakdown that will continue to occur uh, if not enough protein and amino acids are consumed with the first meal of the day. Um, the thermic effect of food, which is called diet-induced thermogenesis, is increased energy expenditure that results from uh, nutrient processing. These values are highest for protein. So in general, just really, if you kind of wake up, have a high-carbohydrate breakfast, not only are you going to get that large spike in glucose and then the dip that then results in hunger, you also haven't doesn't matter how much carbohydrates you consume you physically need protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis and end muscle protein breakdown or degradation and i think that will help put a stop to the hunger in a sense that your body is no longer kind of in a catabolic state it's no longer consuming itself to some extent um, which i think is what also helps with that the feeling of being full. I think it's also important to mention that some studies have indicated that high intakes of protein and fat can pose potential risks to the kidneys due to their association sorry due to their associated protein induced acid loads uh, such as the sulfuric acid production from the oxidation of uh, methionine and cysteine. Um, high protein diets do not adversely influence kidney function in healthy adults though they are associated with the increase in serum urea level and urinary calcium uh, excretion which might be related to a higher risk of kidney stones uh, formation or just kidney stone formation sorry Um, i think this is where you kind of have a look at things and go i don't know bodybuilders have been consuming absurd amounts of protein for some time now and there simply aren't enough 
for lack of a better word, bodies around. You've, yes, you've got stuff induced from uh, steroid abuse and so on, but simply from protein consumption in the natural sphere, it just doesn't seem to, there doesn't seem to be enough uh, shock going on for it to really be a major concern. Now, if it is, then you err on the, lo- the lower side of things. But the adverse effects of obesity are quite clear. So if the trade-off is higher protein, lower carb, uh, moderate fat versus uh, high carb, high body weight, high body fat, then I think you kind of know which direction to go in really. So that that's the, that's the outlook I take. But I thought it was worth mentioning that there is some work out there suggesting that kidney function could be uh, affected now a diet that i think has gained i don't know maybe it hasn't maybe it has been around for much longer and i just haven't been oh maybe that's a lie i think this has been a diet that's been thrown around for a long time the mediterranean diet so the mediterranean diet involves a high intake of fruits and vegetables poultry fish dairy products and little to no consumption of red meat The effectiveness of the Mediterranean diet for weight loss and preventing cardiovascular disease is supported by quite a large body of evidence. Um, Its benefits may extend uh, to the reduction in cancer risk and significant reduction um, in uh, digestive cancer risk. The Mediterranean diet is food-based, nutrient-adequate and focused on uh, vegetables, healthy fats and fish. As a result, it is a good strategy for maintaining long-term weight reduction. I think in reality, the Mediterranean diet just resembles a well-balanced diet. It's not eliminating anything in particular and has all the key macronutrients in adequate amounts. Uh, There's usually quite an emphasis on olive oil and high-quality olive oil, but that's the thing. I think it just simply does not eliminate anything that isn't, the things it's eliminating really are just highly processed foods and and eliminating elimination it's not saying you i mean i know it mentions here the uh, little to no red meat now i think that can be the origins of where the diet comes from can be a result of that but an interesting little fact that i kind of came across and was that a lot of studies done against red meat um are in many cases observational and they are not distinguishing between where the meat is coming from and often a lot of this red meat is associated with burgers and processed fast food meals and as a result the white meat often the heavy white meat and fish consumers tend to have better health health outcomes than the heavy red meat consumers simply because of where the food's coming from and not directly because of the fact that it's red meat but other than that really and you could live quite comfortably without red meat it's still including everything under the sun fruits vegetables fish it's got white meats it's got some red meats it's probably got some dark meats in there dairy products Hey, more love them. It's just it's including them. It's got pretty much everything there. Low. Um, so this I think is something that 
would be the end goal. You could start with a calorie-reduced diet as a simple starting point or a ketogenic diet or any of these kind of diets, but then migrating into the Mediterranean diet seems to be the optimal sort of path for long-term health outcomes, um, ignoring the short term. Now again, another big kind of, especially I think because of the liver king and all that kind of fiasco, the paleo slash primal diet. The, uh, so the paleo, paleolithic or paleo diet is also known as the hunter-gatherer diet, the caveman diet, primal diet, stone age diet. All these diets suggest that our bodies have not evolved to handle highly processed foods. Basically, all you need to think of with this diet is, as I've said, the liver king really. Just imagine that. This diet follows nutritional patterns of early humans who lived in the paleo Paleolithic era, which began more than 2 million years ago and continued until about 10,000 years ago when humans started to cultivate plants and domesticate animals and sort of turn into farmers, really. Uh, estimates are that our ancestors took in 35% of their calories from fat, 35 from carbohydrates, mostly fruits and vegetables, and 30% from protein. Often people will take this even further and rely heavily on meat alone. Uh, this diet advises consuming lean meat, fish, vegetables, fruits and nuts while avoiding grains, dairy products, processed foods and added sugar and salt. A review regarding the paleo diet and its impact on cardiovascular risk factors suggested that it has favourable effects on lipid profile, blood pressure and circulating C reactive protein concentrations. But the evidence is not yet conclusive and the number of studies and their volume really isn't enough to go by. Uh, the paleo diet emphasizes um, vegetables and unprocessed foods, but it also has high in saturated fats, which might increase the risk of cardiovascular disease, which has been mentioned in the around before, usually something against it. But the bit I was quite surprised was, was how much of an emphasis, at least from the paleo diet descriptions I found, of how much plant matter really is included, and whereas a lot of the stuff that I've seen on, I would say, video outlets and other podcasts is a heavy restriction on those kind of things and just really focusing on meat consumption uh, but clearly it allows for more variety than I once thought and so makes it kind of uh, again if you took it to its root cause of just eliminating basically processed foods added salts and getting a moderate like a varied diet then I don't see anything really wrong with it but I think like any diet when taken to the extremes and things start getting eliminated the more things you eliminate I think the doesn't mean the diet becomes uh, bad or useless I think it just means that it then becomes a diet it becomes a dietary intervention that is used for a period of time to achieve a goal and then you need to revert to something that maintains that weight loss but allows for a diverse range of foods for consumption um, so because yeah so and as any uh, elimination diet it tends to have quite a cultish following so going deep on these kind of things you're bound to come across someone saying something and opinions start flying around and it gets a bit cloudy uh, so the resource that I found on this was quite useful for just general guidelines as to what what it is and what it's considered but 
I have been enlightened in some extent and think much more of this dietary pattern because really it just seems to be pushing quality foods. But the more restricted it becomes, I think the less favourable it is for long-term weight loss. So on to the final of the three classifications of diets that I said I would talk about is um, meal timing. Now, initially starting with intermittent fasting, so the dietary strategy of intermittent fasting has become a hot topic of interest online as an avenue to improve health and is often divided into three subclasses, alternate day fasting, whole day fasting and time-restricted eating, of which time-restricted eating, uh, like feeding between 16, 8, which is like 16 hours of fasting, 8 hours of uh, consuming food, is probably the most popular. Um... I think weight loss has been the single biggest reason that people get into intermittent fasting. Nearly all IF di- uh, studies result in some degree of weight loss ranging from about 2.5 to 9. Point, well, 2.5 to 10% um, and associated fat mass loss. Uh, numerous studies have been conducted on IF, but IF protocol duration and baseline characteristics of the sample population vary drastically. In general, once acclimated to the diet, people often report being more satisfied and full with their meals throughout the day, which can go a long way to improving dietary adherence, as we've already kind of discussed. While weight and fat mass decrease in most studies, it is important to consider protocol adherence and dropout rates in intermittent fasting interventions. Some studies have found that the alternate day fasting groups eat more than predicted on fasting day, uh, sorry, than prescribed on fasting days and less than prescribed on feast days. Uh, based on these findings, two questions come to mind, really. First, does intermittent fasting or, or simply the intervention itself lead to weight loss? Or secondly, does the alternate day fasting intervention become intermittent caloric restriction in the real world? Uh, due to difficulty following the protocol. Um, without with, with dropout rates as high as 40% in some studies, even uh, with the uh, statistical significance of weight loss results, the clinical significance of uh, practicality of sustained intermittent fasting regime is a bit kind of questionable. I think that is kind of a common trend. A lot of people kind of drop into it as a form of weight loss and then kind of really struggle. I think the big thing, kind of bringing back to the whole protein and lean mass, you got to kind of look at it as, am I trying to lose weight or am I trying to lose fat mass? And if you're trying to lose fat mass, there is a lot of evidence that shows that when controlled for calories, so someone on a low-calorie diet and someone on a low-calorie intermittent fasting diet, there didn't seem to be any kind of deviation in the amount of weight lost when... Um, caloric restriction uh, is kept constant across the the groups. Now, what they have found is that intermittent fasting can almost serve as a form of natural caloric restriction because people have got a smaller window to eat within or they end up missing something like breakfast. They often don't uh, sort of reclaim those calories later on in the day once they're allowed to eat if they manage to stick to the protocol. The other problem is that if you're in a caloric uh, deficit and you limit yourself to that eight hour window, 
You limit the amount of time that muscle protein synthesis can be stimulated and active, which can increase the period at which you're in uh, muscle protein degradation. Which means, especially if you're someone, say, not even bodybuilding, just looking to preserve lean mass, which everyone should really be looking to preserve, um, intermittent fasting could be detrimental. And especially the older you get and the more finite and vital and sought after really that lean mass becomes because it's so much harder to put on i think it becomes less and less of a dietary intervention that is feasible um, for weight loss at least definitely in a kind of prolonged state if it turns out to be something that really works for you for dropping weight quickly or even over the course of a few months um, then yeah by all means i think follow it but i think in the long term pigeonholing yourself into an eight hour window that eliminates the ability to stimulate muscle protein synthesis i mean i'm always going to come at it from an athletic performance kind of perspective but i think for everyone in reality it's important to to maintain uh, and hold on to that uh, lean muscle mass and then meal timing uh on the as a whole so recently a lot of interest is focused on when to eat people are really focused on that at the moment meal timing and the circadian rhythm have raised a novel issue in weight management alterations of the circadian rhythms produced biochemical physiological and behavioral circadian rhythm disruptions which can be caused by the lack of change between day and night um, synchronization such as being exposed to artificial light at night or eating at night or shift in time due to jet lag or shift work. Uh, eating late can cause circadian disruption, resulting in uh, pro- uh, the production of free cortisol. Changes in the daily, in rhythm- uh, daily rhythms of body temperature, decreased resting energy expenditure and decreased glucose tolerance. As a result of this, timing of meals could have a serious implications not only for weight management but also development of cardiovascular disease. A recent review confirmed that skipping breakfast increased the risk of overweight and obesity. Uh, additionally, late night eating was associated with obesity as well as a metabolic syndrome. Um, now, the skipping breakfast bit is a bit kind of conflicted because there is evidence to say that Skipping a meal, people often don't make up the calories, but I think the bit this was trying to get out was the fact that people skip breakfast and push all the meals later into the day and then it kind of starts to disrupt sleep. Uh, but the American Heart Association recommends uh, distributing calories over a defined period of the day, consuming a great to share of the total calorie intake earlier in the day and maintaining constant overnight fasting periods. Uh, eating a high calorie breakfast and overnight fasting could have positive effects on prevention of obesity while intermittent fasting may help control calorie intake in people with obesity so kind of moving back to that intermittent fasting but i think that's the the big thing because intermittent fasting reports to have effects on the circadian rhythm but it looks mainly to a point to uh food timing because the restrictions mean that people aren't able to eat late into the evening and then as we know sleep has a positive effect on weight regulation so it's just kind of a a cycle of either negative inputs that spiral out of control or positive inputs that allow you to achieve 
your goal. So meal timing definitely has a part to play in weight loss and in general health. If you're on 800 calories a day, you know, the, the critical thing is that the calorie restriction is going to be the most important bit and then all these other factors are going to add up on top to optimize that. So that's the dietary section really done. Uh, and I thought I would add a little bit on the effects of exercise on weight loss because I think it's quite a controversial bit but there's some really key things to take away from this. So it is tricky and complex subject when it comes to weight loss. On one hand, there are so many benefits of exercise. For example, if you're in the top 2.5% uh, for VO2 max by age, you will benefit from a five times reduction in all cause mortality with a 3x uh, reduction coming from going from sedentary to just above average. As for strength training, if you're in the strongest third of the population, you are two and a half times more likely to make it to your 100th birthday. In particular, uh, if this is the case by the time you reach midlife. If you're in your 50s and you're in the one of the strongest 50-year-olds, you are two and a half times more likely to make it to 100. These are really big hitting numbers and kind of, I think, irrespective of weight loss, sort of explain show illustrate how important physical activity is in our overall health span longevity just our being really uh, although exercise does burn calories people often don't realize how much exercise is needed to outrun for lack of a for pun the pun uh, a poor diet the increased energy expenditure is likely to result in increase in uh, uh, appetite and increased dietary intake along with it. People new to exercise have to be aware of this and try to start a new diet with uh, with a rigorous exercise program may not be the best idea. Starting with maybe your diet and then incorporating walking for an hour a day, then bringing more and more intensity and weight training uh, as you go along and as you acclimatize to the diet and the training. Uh, as for the gym on its own, uh, it's a great body recomposition tool, but seriously isn't going to burn enough calories to make a dent into things really when it comes to inducing a caloric deficit. What it is going to do is help maintain muscle mass while dropping weight. So along with the two uh, grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day, the incorporation of strength training is also going to further uh, help to maintain that lean muscle mass as you're losing weight um, and kind of bringing it back to the whole out running a poor diet obviously exercise is never a reason to consume a poor diet but once you start getting into the extreme not even extreme the higher ends like the 10 15 20 hours of exercise per week then obviously the body is just in overdrive and is in such a caloric hungry states that yeah of course you can start pounding down food and not see it put on but the other thing to be cautious about is that calories based on heart rate is already not the best measurement if you've got a bike and a power meter then you're on a very good track there but if you're basing it off heart rate it's going to be a bit dubious 
And then especially if you've got a wrist mounted heart rate sensor that already in itself may be less accurate and then you're just adding lots of error. For example, for me, if I go out on the bike and I do, um, let's just take it in two extremes. So I could do a session that on the power meter registers somewhere in the 900s for calories consumed um, during the workout. But then on my heart rate measurements, we're talking 12, 1300. And 400 calories is huge. I mean, that's a huge shake right there. And then it's even worse, the disparity, when it comes down to zone 2 work, where it can tell me I'm burning as much as an hour, um, sorry, a 1,000 calories an hour, in comparison to the power meter, which will be telling me 600 maybe. So going out on a run, seeing a 1,000 calories burnt, and then going, I can have half a pizza today, and I'm still going to be in a deficit. It's not entirely accurate. You've also got other factors like your body, your brain will just intervene and go. I'm assuming I'm still only got 2000 calories to play with. So I'm going to slow processes down even to the smallest detail of people who are big fidgeters will stop fidgeting. When you start looking at that remote control that you need to go pick up to change the channel, you may sort of draw a blank for a while and not do it. This is all things your brain is doing to prevent you from expending unnecessary energy. So exercise, although the best thing you can do for your health, bar almost none other than sleeping really, it isn't something where you can go, my diet's terrible, I'm just going to start exercising and I will lose weight. So, to end, uh, so I have an important point, an anecdote, and a conclusion. I think it's important to say at this point that fundamentally you will need to be in some sort of caloric deficit to lose weight. There are many different ways to achieve this. Some people count calories and weigh everything, or some people refer to intuitive eating. I personally batch cook and bulk all of my meals, so I know approximately the content of each meal and then weigh out my rice and carbs separately for each meal and use that as my weight gain and reduction tool. It just keeps things very simple for me. I know my protein goals are met and if I'm in a stage of high training and weight reduction sort of maintenance is necessary, then I can just play around with carbs and load them in as much as I want. And with daily weigh-ins I do, I can quite easily see fluctuations over the course of a week, whether I'm gaining a bit too much and over-consuming or whether I'm still losing weight and I'm like, right, okay, then training is clearly intense enough that I need to increase. Um, Under the calories in, calories out model, dietary management in general has focused on the concept of eat less, move more. However, energy intake and energy expenditure are uh, dynamic processes influenced by the body weight and influence each other meaning that interventions aimed at creating an energy deficit through diet are are countered by physiological adaptions that resist weight loss. I think um, this is where some diets can become slightly uh, demotivating as the weight loss process begins to slow down as kind of the body kind of corrects itself towards the reduced uh, caloric intake. 
This is why taking a long-term approach and making a change for good is going to be your best uh, bet for the long term. Maybe you have some metabolic issues that need correcting and they can be aided by the ketogenic diet, but then as that kind of weight starts to come off and you become more metabolically healthy in general, then moving towards something more balanced is probably the ideal route. Um, really, I think that's, that's the main takeaway for me. Diets for the long term that include limited restriction of real foods um, are probably your best bet not eliminating uh, fat or carbohydrates or protein or meats or whatever is probably going to be your best long-term bet although certain as i've said before diets such as the ketogenic diet and extremely low carbohydrate diet in some instances have their place and have their uses as for uh, that when you eat obviously weighting it as far away from bedtime as possible to improve sleep and improve all the benefits that come with that and then diets such as intermittent fasting if you're exercising and you're following a diet already essentially there's no need to pick it up unless it is a method of weight loss that honestly works for you and over a prolonged period of time i think edging away from fasting due to the effects that it is going to have on lean mass is probably going to be your best bet and with that thank you for listening to today's episode if you want more content like this there are plenty of previous episodes to check out on almost all the topics i've covered today But before you do, why not follow the podcast and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts from? Or even better, share it with a friend. It's the best way to kind of spread the podcast. For any comments, feedback, or if you would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, I can be contacted at the vo2lounge at gmail.com. And with that, I will see you in the next one.